0: Well, hello there, we're right back with part two, the Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A show for this mighty fine week. If you listened to part one, well, you'd know that I intended to do a part one that wasn't too long, then it became very, very long, so what I've done is split the opening Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A episode brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com, into a two-parter. And then, funnily enough, I still have one more part to do later in the week. This is all because y'all send in a lot of questions, a lot of comments, a lot of fun stuff. And look, uh, we're trying to meet demand. So thank you again for really picking up and taking up this silly little thing I do with the podcast and talking out my mouth into a microphone, answering what you all send in. So, a little bit of fun here to note before we get rolling. Uh, you'll hear throughout this episode, me mentioning timestamps and hey, and we need to get going or whatever, just realize, in its original form, this is about three hours long, which is just silly. So, uh, what you got here, yeah, less than an hour and a half in this part two. There is indeed a part three coming. I didn't bother changing the ending to this, it's just, it is what it is, as we use Juan Montoya's favorite expression but other than that hey look uh distraction fun it's all we're trying to do this week and so this is what we got <sighs> i'm a mess y'all but thankfully you all accept my massive limitations as a human being and as someone who clearly cannot predict time where do we go first we go to steve grinstead mp oh it's, it says thanks for all the work of compiling the uh, special 1000 episodes It was a nice treat for the holidays. Now for the question, how close is the on-track testing versus computer simulation for chassis setups? Do you foresee a time when on-track would be cheaper? Uh, Best wishes for a happy and safe new year. Uh, Boy, I cannot ever see a time where going to the racetrack would be cheaper than computer-based testing. Uh, The question here of how close, that's the question of correlation, The race car did this on the racetrack. We have data that was captured while doing that thing. Our simulation told us it should do A. The car did A with a tiny little bit of B. That's more often than not the case when it comes to simulation versus real world. And that's not because simulation is bad or can't be extremely accurate, It's just we're asking a computer to try and replicate real life and there's always variables, maybe even just ones that are off by a tiny amount that will make one different enough from the other to say, okay, it's not exactly perfect, but from a correlation standpoint, hopefully it's super close. And so in those instances, which most teams have achieved, or will achieve, I should say, you're able to trust your simulation. All right, well, we know that if we think going up 100 pounds on this spring or changing the ride height to that or doing this aerodynamic thing, uh, we're going to try this uh, in sim. And based on the track record, uh, the quality of the correlation and plugging in all the correct numbers, uh, we should indeed be in a place where we can trust that and it should deliver something that is close to expectations on the racetrack. So that's that's it, Steve. It is... It's really, really, really good and very, very, very expensive weather forecasting. Says it's supposed to be... (laughs) 72 degrees with x humidity at 9:12 a.m. tomorrow. Is it exactly that degree and exactly that humidity? Uh, usually not. Go up a digit, go down a digit. Hopefully it's really close based on the quality of your tools and also the information that you're using to predict. But this is ultimately prediction and computer-based prediction. And you really love it when you absolutely nail it, but there's always an expectation that it's going to give you a great direction and it's going to be close, but the lap time is going to be marginally different. And the tuning to the car, while it might be close to what you wanted it to be and the driver's happy, it's probably going to be some minor tweaks involved as well. Uh, to get it all the way there uh we're going to eater flozada says marshall ola well ola to you eater uh how do you rate the drivers that have come to indycar from gp2 or formula 2 in the last decade well that's a big question uh how are they on track and off the track with the media all right this is a big question i'm gonna go through it pretty quickly here's a list of the names i could think of mike conway giorgio pantano ernesto viso ernesto jose a.k.a. E.J. Viso, uh, Luca Filippi, Rodolfo Gonzalez, Stefano Coletti, Jordan King, Renee Binder, says I can add Max Chilton, Alexander Rossi, and Santino Ferrucci to the list, wishing you a better 2021 to you and your loved ones. Thank you. Uh, let's see. I always love Conway. He's got a great kind of snarky sense of humor and personality. Not a big, loud guy, but hey, we, you know, the world has plenty of them uh, Pantano, I really didn't get to know him too much. Um, EJ, I did. I loved EJ. Uh, he's always a blast. i I miss EJ. I really do. He, uh, he brought a lot of character to the paddock. Luca as well. He's a sweetheart, man. That guy was quick. Rodolfo really didn't know. Coletti knew him a little bit. I still love the interview that Robin Miller and I did with uh, KV racing team owner, uh, Kevin Kalkoven, who said that Coletti reminded him a lot of a young Will Power. <laughs> not laughing at Kevin. Obviously, there's optimism there. Didn't quite pan out. Uh, Jordan King has enjoyed, you know, uh, yeah, check the pulse a little bit every now and then. Uh, wasn't necessarily a lot, a lot there. Uh, Bender really didn't know, you know, again, not really a, I hate to say it, but I didn't really have any real reasons to go down and talk to him. Uh, I mean, again, I'm sure that I said hi to him once or twice and had whatever amount of words that weren't many, but, um, you know, uh, there's a bit of a merit based thing here too, Eater, which is, you know, if it's season opening test, it's spring training, something like that. And it's a new guy, new gal coming in. You probably wander over and say, hi, you know, introduce yourself, ask a question or two. Maybe you did you know, in the months before, whenever they might have been announced just over the phone. But after that, you know, there is a bit of a a merit-based thing. It's not as if you don't talk about somebody or write about somebody if they don't finish in the top five. I'm just saying that if someone's just kind of bumping along near the bottom of the field, eh, there's not a lot of reason to go down and talk to them. Uh, Because, you know, uh, yeah, unless you know there is some valid reason why, Uh, but... In the case of Rene, for example, I mean, you know, only known as a sweet guy who really wasn't qualified to be an IndyCar. Um, as for those who've come uh, and rating and such, I don't know. I don't get into the whole rating thing too much. I mean, Conway's a talent, was a talent. That was clear, serious talent. Uh, whether he'd come from GP2 or any other series, it was just clear that that guy was a real deal. Uh, Giorgio, you know, I wish he had more time in IndyCar know that he had a brief stint with Ganassi and then came back again. What was that? Five, six years ago. Set however many years ago, but you know, I mean, I always thought the guy was pretty darn good. We just didn't get to see much of him. EJ, you know, bounced around a lot, had some good runs for sure. Uh, but you know, I don't know if EJ was expected to, uh, you know, beat up the world and become a champion. Luca, uh, Felt like maybe in a Penske or Ganassi we could have seen some wins from him, but um you know was he too nice? Right? <laughs> I don't know. One of those guys where you go, was Luca too nice? Did he have that hard edge? Uh not just on track, but also the and I won't let things bother me if things don't go my way. You know, just everybody that I know that knows Luca, and I loved Luca when he was here, but everybody that I know When we talk about Luca, it's always a big smile. Man, that guy's the best, sweetest person, super fast driver, skilled in all those things. Never really talk about, and oh my God, people were deadly afraid when they saw him. Um, You know, there's some drivers who invoke, or invoke, incite something, that fear. Luca just didn't appear to really have that. Um, Anyways, yeah, I mean, look, it's no different than Indy Lights, right? Uh, If you're showing talent at the highest level of the university before graduating to the top, top series, um, you'd expect they would be pretty darn good. Great to hear from you. Uh, All right, here we go with one of my favorite Reddit usernames. Okay. Rocky, by the way, is just looking at me like I've lost my mind. He's grooming himself right now. Thanks, pal. Your uh, left front paw perfectly clean uh let's see how do you expect the explosion of lmh and lmdh sports car programs in the near future to affect IndyCar teams ability to attract international talent it says i saw kevin magnuson as one of the drivers uh mentioned by auto Ebdo, that's a french magazine supposed to drive for peugeot starting next year uh it sounded earlier uh in the off season like the imsa ride with chip ganassi racing May have been a step towards racing IndyCar uh, for them at some point. That's a great question. Okay. Sorry, my singing voice. As if it was ever on is really off. Uh, I had a delightful conversation yesterday. Yeah, yesterday with a ultra successful, holy cow, this person's won some of the biggest races in the world, like badass of badasses, factory driver in sports cars. And the topic of conversation was actually exactly uh, about the question that you pose here. And it was all framed around when LMH, that's Le Mans Hypercar, that's actually due to kick off here, uh, what, in a couple of months in the FI World Endurance Championship? Um, But it's going to pick up steam and, in theory, get Peugeot coming in in 2022. And then LMDH, the IMSA formula, as we already discussed, uh, should have multiple multiple manufacturers there. We could be staring at the exact problem you are mentioning here, which is, whoa, there's a lot of factories looking for factory-grade, factory-type talent, and is there enough to go around with... We expect, I know this is our IndyCar show, but I'm just sharing sports car stuff. Audi has jumped in to LMDH. It's also that those cars are also going to be allowed in Europe in the WEC. So at Le Mans and the other four, five, six races they do on their uh, racing calendar. Well, we expect them to have two full-time factory cars there and two full-time factory cars here in America and IMSA. Porsche has jumped in as well. We expect them to do the same. Two in Europe, two over here. Uh, That's a lot of drivers that you... like, And again, not half ass drivers, but real, holy poop type talent. And then you start stacking more brands. As you mentioned here, Peugeot. Toyota already has their drivers, but there's just going to be a demand that I don't know how well it's going to be met. And so as a result, I think you will absolutely see scenarios potentially i haven't asked kev i haven't asked ganassi probably should um are you hoping to assuming this peugeot thing comes through for him are you hoping to do multiple series at the same time or are you thinking you're going to do one year in a cadillac and imsa with ganassi and then bail and then go do the wc with peugeot in a hypercar And the question wouldn't actually be so specific to just Kevin. It would be more of trying to get a a read on what an elite driver like that sees as being smartest for the future. So take our pal, our French fry, Sebastian Bourdais, while driving for Dale Coyne. um, And I was at KV before that. But anyways, over the four-year factory Ford Chip Ganassi GT program. Seb was a full-time IndyCar driver and filled in with uh, endurance rounds uh, in the Ford, but uh, he's keeping himself as busy as he could. And so here's a guy who, in demand, and is racing each season in a minimum of two paddocks. uh, Three if possible, four if possible. Wonder if Kevin might be viewing himself in that regard of, okay, cool, Peugeot. Yeah, would love to do something with you. That'd be great. But hey, maybe I like this American thing and whether it's IMSA, staying in IMSA in 2022, or who knows if there's a IndyCar opening with Ganassi or whatever else. Wonder what this is going to be because to your point to close here, it has been common for a manufacturer to hire a driver. That driver is a factory driver then and commits to the, usually the one thing that manufacturer wants them to do for the season. Might share them around a little bit. Hey, you're going to do the full WEC season plus the 24 hours of Daytona and IMSA for us with whomever you'll do Le Mans, whatever it is, but you're going to have one primary thing might sprinkle you around in a few others. I'm curious, and this is the the thing I really am going to want to find out, with what I expect to be a super crazy run on factory-grade talent here, how many of these manufacturers doing the hiring would be able to say, you can only do the one thing for us, compared to, okay, you're currently driving for someone in a totally different series, can we hire you hopefully the calendars are free enough to where there's no conflicts um can we borrow your time because i don't know if there's just going to be enough standalone individual talent waiting to be hired so that each manufacturer can just hire all the people they want who aren't engaged in anything else don't have multi-year contracts and other things and just have them all to themselves so That's the first thing I thought of when I read the the prospective drivers for the Peugeot thing was Kevin, who was mentioned there, obviously, of, huh, that'd be cool for him, I guess. And he could do Le Mans and all that kind of stuff, but what would he want to do? Would he want to be full season? Would he want to be select races? Um, Would he want to leave here? I don't know, but he struck me as someone who might have multiple contracts in place and that might end up being a pretty common thing uh, because i don't think there's going to be enough talent for everyone to have their own people who just play for them and no one else uh todd dostal says whatever happened to alex lloyd i always thought he was decent uh in the chances he got but he disappeared after 2011 you know i've actually been thinking about the same thing of late and i need to drop young alex a note whenever he decided the racing thing was really no longer going to be a steady and viable path to continue down he dropped me a note and said hey i want to start writing and he did and he's super talented uh super super talented and i just haven't seen his work for a couple of years so it means i have totally missed it, totally forgotten, and I am a giant moron and he's been out there cranking out amazing content uh, and I've been oblivious or he maybe hasn't and yeah, Um, so I just need to find out, but yeah, uh, I love me some Alex Lloyd. I got all the time in the world for him and really do uh, wish that I saw whatever he was doing more often. Where are we going next? Uh, Jason, love the podcast. Thanks. I do too. Sometimes host is a bit garbage. Uh, What do you think the plan is for those who get the vaccine versus those who haven't had the chance when it comes to attendance in May? I would say I don't know, Jason, because as I have read and continue to read, it doesn't sound like there's been a lot of success in a coordinated vaccine distribution, inoculation, whatever type thing so far. I believe someone else asked about this recently on the podcast, so I don't want to just repeat every or spend much time on this. But I don't know if the new administration coming in next week is going to I know they've said they plan on changing things and making things better and doing all kinds of stuff, but, I mean, we got to see it first before we can say it's going to be reality. So I just know that for what I've read on almost a daily basis, there doesn't appear to be a well-oiled implementation of vaccine rollout. And will that change here in the coming weeks and months with a new president and new administration? Maybe, but, uh, again, so, I don't know. <laughs> it, it appears to be a thing right now where I would I would struggle to believe the Indianapolis Motor Speedway would say, show us your papers. You must prove you have been inoculated for us to allow you in the facility. Uh, that seems a little bit rich because do i really think that the vaccine rollout and every american receiving one uh, or every american will receive one by the end of april to therefore if that were a barrier to entry they put in place that could be met at the indy 500 i don't have a lot of faith in that brother um I also am not a thousand percent sure we're going to have the eighty five hundred in May. So, again, I don't know. It's a great question. Uh, I just, I don't know because I don't run the country, thankfully. Uh, let's see. JJ Gertler. JJ Gertler. I enjoy you, JJ. You know that. Um, this is probably a really basic question. It is. You're fired. Uh, are new Delar DW12s being made or are the old ones just continually being updated? If there's still new production, since we don't have a lot of new teams for hand-me-downs, what's happening to the old chassis? Well, Mr. Gertler, first of all, you're going to be reprimanded here for not reading my story in late December about Takuma Sato's Indy 500 winning chassis being, quote, retired and shipped to Japan for its new home at the Honda Museum, because in that article... You would have read words from the mighty fine team manager, that is, Ricardo Nolt, who said that they are slash have purchased a brand new chassis from Delara to replace it. And I actually think they might have uh, uh, ordered two, maybe. I'm not totally sure. Um, but, yeah, they do still make new ones. And, yeah, I don't really think the old chassis is particularly disappear um most that i know of are still in use so uh, granted there are some exceptions of course where you know alexander rossi's retired chassis from winning the 500 was sold and then this so again there are a few uh examples where that isn't the case but yeah by and large we're not at that stage where uh dw-12s are collecting dust in a barn so there you go uh Kevin Frederico says, "Hey MP, do you feel Jay Fry and IndyCar approach uh, the delaying the new chassis introduction uh, with kind of a year-to-year reverse rollout? Do you think that's a sound one?" He says, "Their reason is to save money for the teams, but doesn't updating arrow and or doesn't an updating and retrofitting an aging chassis is not more expensive in the long run? Would not it be better to just bite the bullet now and start fresh with a new car after uh, the new motors?" Uh, as well as grandfather the current ones for teams that can't swing it. Well, yeah. So for the teams that can't swing it, grandfathering and then possibly introducing a new one and then doing some sort of, what, balance of performance. Yeah, we see how that makes sports cars pretty ugly. This is one area, Kev, where I am just having to stand on faith with our friend, Mr. Fry. Because like you, I don't understand it. I don't understand how it could work. I've explained that on the show before, so I'll try and give you the 30-second soundbite of that before moving on. With this new motor making more power by at least 100 from the internal combustion side, plus a kinetic energy recovery system that's expected to contribute upwards of 80 to 100 horsepower to get us to about 900 um, at least the drivetrain, at least the things that make the power and put it to the ground and handle and corner and stop and all that, these things are going to be pushed and taxed way beyond what the DW twelve chassis was intended to do. So to handle all that, I can only imagine everything from behind the carbon fiber tub is going to be brand new in year one to deal with all that. Brakes, drive shafts, gearbox, the whole shebang bang in theory, and I know we're going beyond 30 seconds here. I'll keep it. try and keep it to 60. Uh, could you potentially use the front half of the current car? Potentially, but with what we expect to be more weight at the back of the car, with all the hybrid stuff, hybridization bits and pieces, you'd probably need more wing applied to the front. Uh, suspension loads, are they a question? I don't know, but brakes up front as well would probably need to change. I don't see how they do this uh, in a meaning in a successful way. So that's why I'm having to stand on faith that there's something I don't understand that Jay and his team do and believe that it will work. But I know that very recently a dear friend who is an IndyCar race engineer. And yes, I know we're now beyond 60 seconds. That's the flaw of my personality. Never believe me when I give you a timestamp, a dear friend who is a successful race engineer, We had a recent exchange via text, and um, I'll just say that this person who's a thousand times more accomplished than I ever was uh, and is way smarter and does it every day in the series kind of sort of has the same concerns about how this is going to work. So again, I'm hoping to actually get a real roadmap before long of like, okay, well, if you were to do it, what would you do in year one? What would you do in year two? What? Tell me how this works. So I'm hoping. I'm hopeful. Uh, Dave Heisen. Hey, related question. Funny how Tim put these together like that. Hybrid power pack integration. I've studied Delara's with the bodies off. Where do you imagine? They stuff the battery, harness and peripherals. Power assist in the gearbox? Check. After that, you tell me. Um, well, the motor generator unit the big electric generating motor, the, the big mechanical spinny bit, that is meant to go directly, if we're talking from nose to tail, behind the motor, uh, in the area kind of right in front of the clutch, um, and sandwiched between the clutch and the transmission. That area which has a uh a metal structure that links the engine to the transmission it's called the bell housing that's just the name bell housing and so in that bell within that bell housing, which slides over uh the clutch and bolts to the back of the motor and whatnot uh within that space is where the big spinny mechanical uh, bit is meant to sit so there's weight now behind the motor and to a significant degree that has never been the battery is a big question for me uh, dave and i don't again i've asked and i don't have an answer yet so i'm just going to keep asking and hopefully find out um, where do they put the battery the battery is known to be heavy um, where do you put that do you put that Beneath the fuel cell? Maybe, right? Uh, The way you see it in Formula One cars is the back of the tub, what the motor slides up towards and is bolted to. At the bottom of the tub, there's a notch taken out. Instead of it just being a truly flat floor right there leading right up to the motor, uh, there's a rectangular notch taken out, and that's where the battery bolts to so directly in front of the motor, at the bottom of the back of the tub, uh, but separated from the fuel cell, which lives just above it, but just inside of a carbon fiber enclosure. I don't know if, and I'm not totally sure if all Delara's if we're, well, they have said they plan on using the current DW12 in the first year of this new hybrid formula in 2023. Since this tub's been, modified a million times already would there be some sort of call to send all them off to Delara or whomever else to basically reconfigure and try and add a notch where it doesn't exist i don't know how you do that and maintain true chassis integrity torsional rigidity so on and so forth so what do you do do you install a shelf a Below the fuel cell that it lives in. So, again, there's a separation. So, a <laughs> fuel bladder isn't sitting on top of a big battery. Uh, you know, truly sitting just on top with no separation. I don't know. Uh, do they try and fit it on one side of the car or the other? Again, I don't know. I know that answers to this, I'm sure they have come up with. Getting the answer is where I have fallen short, my friend. So, uh, yeah. I I do my best to ask these questions and realize that over the last year or so, they've had to be done over the phone. Quite often, it's the ability to sit down with another human being and interact eye to eye and have, say, a pen or pencil in hand and some paper and start to scribble and say, okay, so if this is the back of the tub of the DW-12, where where do you think, Where would I scribble in where the battery would go and so on? And that's sometimes a more effective communication tool where things are more forthcoming. I've just failed at this so far, Dave. Uh, Michael Brennan, Marshall, question about tires. And it may be a dumb one, but I ask anyways. You know, as the old adage goes, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Only dumb people who ask questions. Sorry, a little bit of humor. It's one of my favorite lines. It's been used on me, Michael, so I'm not saying it about you. Just it's an opportunity for me to share one of my favorite little dumb jokes. I says, tire pressure adjustments. What do they actually do? It says, thank you for all you do and continue best wishes and prayers for you and your wife. Thanks, man. Uh, okay, well, we need to think of inflating a tire like inflating a balloon. So... I'm not going to get into all the ways that this affects chassis adjustments and handling and performance and whatnot, but think of a tire like a balloon. And if a balloon has not a lot of air in it, in this case, nitrogen is actually used, not air uh, in the tires. It's much more stable and consistent uh, than air. Uh, But if you think of a balloon that is, mostly inflated, but not fully inflated. Put your hand on it. It's a little spongy. You can squeeze it. You can, right? It's not solid. You add more pressure, say fill it all the way. All of a sudden you can't really do that, right? You can't really make indents with your finger. It is a much harder, more solid device. That is what we have here with tire pressure adjustments. So why would you add pressure or remove pressure? Well, thinking of these tires as balloons, they are springs, really. So you're talking about the springiness of a balloon and squeezing one that's partially filled versus fully inflated. A lot of factors to consider here. The suspension alignment, the tire wear that's being demonstrated, right? There's a lot of things here your toe, your caster, your camber, your all kinds of stuff. Uh, that will affect how the tires are worn and used and perform. We're not so much talking about, I'll do, we'll just limit this to the inflation question, tire pressure adjustments. If you have a driver that says, hey, the car is understeering too much, and I go into the corner and I turn, and boy, I see my hands going in one direction, And I'm looking, turning my head, looking in the direction of where I want the car to go. But darn it, it is not going with me. It's just going straight. Well, that might be a situation where the team says, hey, tire pressures might be too high. The front of the car, for example. So balloons overinflated, too rigid, too rock solid. I can't squeeze it. It's not pliable at all. Well, if you think about tires, what do they do? They interact with the ground. They try and make friction. They try and make contact where they dig into the road and deliver the handling performance the driver wants. Well, if you overinflate, again, I'm just talking real generalisms here. If you overinflate the balloon, can't it's just solid, can't dig your fingers into it at all. Well, probably not going to then dig into the road it's just going to skid across the surface so what you might do that spring it's too springy it's too stiff too overinflated so what you might do is reduce the tire pressure reduce it by a pound or two psi you might reduce that or you can get into what most teams use now bar millibar of uh inflation so you might take a little bit of nitrogen out you might take a little bit of volume out of that balloon and all of a sudden yeah you don't want it so it's almost totally deflated but maybe you take just a little bit out now you can squeeze it just a little bit now you can see it's still springy but not as springy as you squeeze that balloon and hey Maybe now that, well, not maybe, that balloon, in this case a tire, less inflated but a smaller margin, will now give you a better opportunity of digging into the track surface, giving you the grip, holding the road as you want, so when you turn the steering wheel, the car actually moves. So in a general sense, that's what's going on here. You have recommended tire pressures that come in, in this case an IndyCar and from Firestone, Road to India'd be Cooper and so on. Um they'll give you pressure recommendations for minimum and maximum. Don't go, don't exceed high or low, um, which gives you a pretty good idea of what to look for. Um but in general, this is a pretty interesting tuning device. Drivers during the race, in particular, to close here, Michael, this is where you're going to hear about it a lot, far more than any other session, and that's because once drivers are into the race, yeah, there's some small things that teams can adjust during that race. By and large, if we're talking a road course, I mean, even a, a, an oval, change the front wing angle, add or remove a little bit of downforce to change the balance, tip the balance forward on the car, or back to the driver's liking so it feels planted and stable uh super speedways you can make a rear wing adjustment to add or remove a little bit you don't see that very much anti-roll bars drivers can change in the cockpit which changes how the car reacts as it rolls going through a corner uh or even pitching under braking a little bit um assuming it's not 100 percent straight line braking but for the most part, the tire pressure is the big thing the team can adjust to really suit the driver's needs. Hey, as the fuel burns off, boy, thing really goes to big oversteer, understeer, whatever it might be. Probably going to get a tire, a uh, wing adjustment during that next pit stop. But you're also probably going to see some form of tire adjustments as well, because either. Adding inflation uh to the balloon or deflating the balloon a little bit. It's gonna give that driver the handling feel and performance that the, uh, that they want. Why am I forgetting how to speak as well here? I apologize. Uh all right, we're in the home stretch, friends. JJ Gertler's back. Uh here's a very, very indie car related question. It says, I know that you used to change the music beds for your weekly shows. Uh, at the beginning of each new year this year you didn't for the week in indycar and he says which i don't mind i like this one says was that a deliberate choice or there's just a lot going on in your world uh both i like this one so i think i'm gonna stick with it for the rest of the year i know that i actually started last year with a different one and didn't like it and so i changed it um i do like this one and so I did put a little bit of thought into this, said, should I just stay with it? And so since folks who've at least been listening for the last year come to associate its sound with the week in IndyCar? That probably would be something a marketing and branding person would say, Yeah, you dipshit, why weren't you doing that already? Uh I also have not had a the time that I want. To spend looking around, looking around, listening around, uh, my favorite music bed site to see if and what might be there that would make me say, aha That's it. So it's a pretty specific thing with a lot of the non-week based <laughs> I mean I do the week in IndyCar, but for the last what, five, six months it's been two week been doing one a week for the Week in Sports Cars, but uh, we had to do two last week because there's so many questions. These are all great problems to have. The more y'all demand, you know, trying to feed it, which is great compared to nobody giving a crap, nobody writing in and asking. But I have to think, compared to some of the other, call it non-weekly shows, where I just pick whatever music bet I like for that thing, knowing that it's, you know, uh, just a, a limited run, got to think a little bit bigger picture here of what will be okay to listen to for a whole year or more that people won't go or most people hopefully won't go oh my lord man would you find something else so uh i feel the one that we have right now is one that passes that test but if i find something else uh that passes it as well might change it uh jeremy davis how you doing pal uh says hey i'll give this one another go this week um also says, thank you again for the Racing for Cancer pack. He says, Dixon signed hero cards. Uh, by the way, Jeremy's a big fan of Scott Dixon. Um, meant to send this a while back. He says, while racing at the uh, Sarah Fisher's Carding Sarah Fisher's Place in Indy, I noticed that Harding Steinbrenner's uh, racing shop is still located on Main Street by MS, IMS. Uh, is that facility still open and operationable? He uh, says, my understanding was in 2020, Brian, uh, Brian Herta, Colton Herta's number 88 car. Uh, was operating through Andretti's main shop in Zionsville. Uh, Just curious. Uh, Let's see. He also says uh, he loves the new John Andretti uh, Weekend IndyCar logo. Thanks, brother. Um, As I think I recall, and I apologize because sometimes my brain is not my friend when it tries to remember a lot of things across the series I cover, I believe Brian Herta Autosport moved into there. And I believe that is where their IMSA Michelin Pilot Challenge championship winning, ass-kicking, just name the class after Hyundai uh, program runs out of. I believe it's also where they do kind of sales and support. There are a number of of independent teams, customer teams running the Hyundai TCRs. Um, I believe all that happens out of there. So if I'm wrong, then I'm totally wrong. But I know Brian said he took over a significant shop there, and I'm sure I wrote about it, and I'm just struggling to answer properly. Jeremiah Morrell, hey, how are you and your fine, fine spouse? Um, Three-week West Coast swing to finish the season. How will teams handle that? He says, transporters stay out west and personnel travel home during the week, or they just set up shop out west for weeks and weeks. Curious if there's anything that compares in previous seasons. I don't remember about the previous season, so I apologize. Um, I've heard, not confirmed, but heard that, what, Fontana could possibly be used as a bit of a way station uh, between Laguna and Long Beach. I don't know if that's right. Uh, I also don't know if or why IndyCar teams wouldn't be able to just... Well, granted, unless it's rented out, Laguna Seca does a lot of track rentals. Um, they have garages there. Those garages are often rented as part of whatever that daily thing happens to be from a club coming in or an auto manufacturer doing some sort of press thing or whatever. But the garages that the IndyCar teams work out of on uh, pit Strait, Provided those aren't booked up, I would think they might be able to just stay at Laguna for a day or two, drive down I mean at highway speeds in a road car, not a semi it's five ish five and a half hours down to long beach um I don't know the load in day I'm guessing it would be Thursday morning, so you know we're talking about staying over Monday, Tuesday. Wednesday start driving down. They can do it there they will obviously. If not, um I'm guessing Fontana might be a place and Portland, yeah. Uh, I'm guessing teams would stay over there as well. Uh I know that they do track rental stuff there, but I the they don't have garages that the teams work out of that they might get booted from. So I think it'd be pretty normal in that regard. Really the Portland to Laguna thing no real questions, Jeremiah. Pretty straightforward. But the Laguna to Long Beach could be a question if the uh, lovely track in Monterey is already booked up uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever. Uh, let's see. Zach Eckler. Hey, MP. Hope you, your lovely wife, and kitties had a great Christmas and New Year. We did, Zach. We didn't do anything. And that was actually the gift. So we, uh, yeah, it's pretty darn cool, my friend. So I was curious on Indy lights teams and what they do after their races are over. Do they stay and watch the IndyCar races or do they go home? Uh, also, what did the Indy lights teams do during this last year with COVID going on? So thank you very much and love the show as always. Thank you, Zach. That's really kind. Oh yeah. This is a little bit tough one, my friend. so a number of the teams said, Hey, we're going to go do something else because if we don't, we're going to go out of business. So we had a number of teams that went and did, uh, what, Formula Regional Americas, kind of F4, the SCCA is now promoted uh, and run under the Perella Motorsports banner, Uh, the kind of U.S. Formula 3, Formula 4 type stuff. Uh, That's what most of them did. Um, Some we have seen didn't survive or didn't go forward with their Indy Lights programs coming into 2021. So, yeah, uh, the ones that could scrambled to do other things or for those that had USF 2000 or Indy Pro 2000 programs um, just did that and tried to hold on to as many people as they could and repurpose them there. Uh, as for do they stay over and watch the races, I mean, in, in a general sense, it's kind of the best ticket, right? <laughs> You're there. Uh, you're on the inside, and you no longer have work to do or any distractions. I'm not saying that sitting in a grandstand or you know whatever corners you can walk out to as a fan aren't that's not awesome, but you know this is kind of the golden ticket. So yeah, I can tell you that as a guy who spent many years working in indie lights, I abused the hell out of my hard card and got to and went to all kinds of places I never should have been allowed, but the indie lights credentials for the most part look no different. I mean, they were effectively the cart credentials. Um, the, I don't think any of them were like welded to the lanyard. So you could kind of swap out the lanyard or whatever you wanted, but, Oh yeah. I mean, you know, full abusing of things you shouldn't, where you shouldn't be, what you shouldn't do, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, Yeah, so do other teams, Indy Lights teams, still do that and drivers and whatnot? I'd hope so. I mean, look, you're paying a lot or you're putting in your work and time. I hope you enjoy. Granted, there are scenarios where uh, either IndyCar or the track or whatever has a pretty strong, you know, say they're racing on Saturday at whatever venue and the IndyCar race is on Sunday. Uh, It's not uncommon to get the boot, and say, hey, you're out of here. You're out of the paddock. Why? Well, we're going to open that up to more team parking or sponsor parking or something. So, yeah, there's a little bit of, you know, the, the getting the jobber deal from uh, from those above. But, yeah, it's not uncommon. And I would say for sure, if you are an Indy Lights driver or you are an Indy Lights mechanic or engineer, whatever it is with aspirations to go to IndyCar Why would you be doing these things if you didn't, if you aren't staying over and watching and on pit lane and building relationships and saying, Hey, team X, can I stand on your timing stand? Or, Hey, could I put on a headphone, head, headphone, Jesus, headset and radio and, you know, whatever it is. I mean, this is, you know, this is The fun game that goes on before the big football game, yes, all those players come off the field and they're done. If you don't try and find a way to stay and watch the big game happen and get yourself plugged in somehow, if that's where you want to be in a year or two or however many, I'd say you're really cutting yourself uh, short in terms of opportunity. Uh, Justin Holmes. Says, why do you think Portland isn't among the favorite tracks for drivers? Well, I got asked, Justin, and again, feel free to send back send an answer back. I I'm not aware of Portland not being a track that drivers d- don't like, dislike. I mean, it's not the most complex track in the world, but I don't recall hearing any I don't recall hearing drivers while speaking with them while at Portland or talking about Portland, any of them saying they dislike it. Um, So as for why it isn't among the favorites again, I don't know if I'd say that, that is that an assumption or have you read things, heard things where drivers have said that if that's the case, then that's just different than my experience. So please educate me. But I would say, I mean, I've always loved it. And I recall back in the cart days in particular, uh, you know, the the thing was a fast lap, a hard lap, hard racing that went with it. And it was certainly a place that was respected and enjoyed and all those things. I haven't heard really anything different than that these days. Maybe we've just heard more of the geez, you know, road America is amazing. And you know, this track is amazing and I don't know. Uh, it's certainly not as complex as some of those, um, but I don't know if I would say there's a lack of love. So school me, Mr. Holmes, and uh, I'll do my best to answer in whatever capacity that I can. All right, we are down. We're The, the finale's almost here, friends. Uh, it's a longer episode to open the week, but hey, there you go. Uh, John Wojnar, a.k.a. John Ranjow, a.k.a. Uh, co-executive branch leader of the Prue Day says, hey, MP, in light of recent crazy events in the world, I have no idea what you're referring to. I got inspired to ask, what's the craziest run-in you ever had with track security? Uh, Also, what's the craziest illegal thing you saw happen out of track? Uh, As always, praying for you and your wife, your pal, John Ranjo. Thank you, brother. Uh, This is an easy one to answer. I feel like I've told it before in the show, but it might have been before you started listening, John. For many, many years, I think dating back to the early 90s, I made a habit of, with my credentials, whether it was SCCA, Toyota Atlantic, Indy Lights, IndyCar, IRL, Cart, whatever, um, had good friends at Sears Point who did vinyl custom printing, you know, stickers for cars and car numbers and all kinds of stuff, and they would print off pretty much anything that I asked. So I made a habit. My pal, Michael Cannon, did the same thing. Um, I don't know how many others, maybe a couple others. Uh, but we would print off fake things and put them over our faces on our credentials. So if you saw my credential at whatever track for many years, you never saw my face on it. It'd be my body, but it'd be something else. Or, yeah, I mean, hell, I remember one year, I think Cannon, uh, what did, we were at... S- I don't remember where, but we had some, um, cereal and I'm forgetting the brand, Tony, the tiger, whatever the hell that is. They're great. Um, he just decided to cut Tony's head off of the cereal box and got some duct tape and taped it over his face on his credential. And that's what he wore for a while. Um, that was pretty common. So in 2000, um, while I was working for the tragedy of a team known as Team Extreme in the I to the R to the L. Uh, I don't remember whose face I had my friend print that I put over mine. Um, I feel like it was Samuel L. Jackson, maybe? Something like that. Um, Clearly, as a white guy me as a white guy with a credential with the face of a black guy uh right just not even close to anything that might be conf- you could never look at it and say oh okay yeah that i i see the resemblance right so i think it might have been him i think it might have been samuel jackson from pulp fiction again i'm forgetting a little bit but it was just one of those things where been doing it forever was just not even a thought, just a joke, right? Ha, ha, he, he. Um, our shitty team was out of the Indy 500 that year. I don't know, halfway through the race, whatever it was. Uh, I think our battery kept dying and there was some sort of electrical issue. Davy Hamilton was my the driver that I worked with that year. So we were out of the race and great. My girlfriend was there at the time, um, black woman. And this is one who I've mentioned before where we received some really awesome racist stuff from my own team. Uh, just share that for the sake of sharing, I guess. Uh, the I was able to get her into a suite, a overlooking um, the pits past the break, uh, the gasoline alley pit wall break. So towards turn one, so... She was in a pit lane suite couple suites down uh past the break in the wall. And so in my fire suit, uh, I think I had it down tied around my waist though, so okay, that's on me. But uh I would say looking pretty indie car guy <laughs> right, got my race day fire suit on, um we're done, the car had been wheeled back, we're done. And so we were done we were pissed and all those things It had been a sh- crappy month. So it wasn't like we all came back to the garage at the same time and put our hands together in prayer. It was just one of those. Yeah, I'm just going to, you know, the races, there's still half a race to go. I'm just going to go blow off steam elsewhere. So I was like, well, um, my girlfriend who doesn't really know racing, uh, and is here, which is awesome. But you know, she, she's not like, Oh, the team is out and this is what will happen next. And you know, uh, like, well, I better go get her and at least go see her. And so I, before the race walked her to, and we went up the steps and got, you know, went into the suite and made sure she was okay. And everything was good. And then left, you know, down to pit lane, Indy 500 and race is over pulled the suit down, just tied it around my waist. But again, very clear. You would have to say looking at me that this is an IndyCar person coming from pit lane, uh, had my credential around my neck. And so walked over to go up the same stairs, just started trotting up. And I think he was an off duty police officer who had, you know, been hired kind of a security yellow shirt type. Um, just trotting up the stairs it wasn't busy there wasn't a rush you know there weren't people going up and down i mean there was no commotion it's just really straightforward and you know got halfway up and the guy says let me see your credential as i'm kind of going past him and reaches over as i'm going up and grabs my credential and this is not one of the breakaway lanyards that has the little clasp at the back that if it gets caught in something or whatever, it'll come away and come off your neck. So hyper aggressive, and I—I I mean, literally, when the guy did this, he and I were about the same size, right? I'm six one-ish, almost six one. Uh, I don't know what I weighed then, but uh, I think about two twenty. I was pretty lean back then compared to my fat ass now but yeah at 220 i was pretty lean um and so he was about the same size and i know that because as i'm kind of getting just trotting up the stairs wasn't forceful wasn't trying to run past security security or anything like that nonetheless this person responded in a way like i was trying to break into a bank and run off with all the goods and so just kind of jogging up the stairs to try and get to her. Let me see your credential. And says that as I'm just almost parallel with him about to go by, he reaches over, grabs my lanyard, and holds on to it tight, which I then become the dog whose collar gets yanked or, and spins me halfway around. And I'm not always the most, Happiest guy when someone I don't know, and especially in a situation that doesn't warrant it, tries to exert all kinds of authority over me. And so, this didn't turn into, oh no, I've pissed off or angered the track, the hospitality suite, stair access person. Uh, I better stop and apologize and kowtow and whatever and make amends. It was, you want to throw down? Like, what? Again, the forceful action reaction did not fit the scenario at all. And so I find myself nose to nose with the guy. And we had some very heated words. And he, now seeing my hard card 2000 irl hard card where you know if you see my shoulders maybe you could look at the guy in front of you on the hard card and go hard card shoulders guy's shoulder in front of me yeah those kind of look the same but really most credentials it's just kind of your face it's not your the rest of your body what this guy after first thinking that I was trying to sneak and run past him, dressed up like an IndyCar crew member, of course, to pull off the big caper here. Hopefully this is vaguely amusing. Um, Stops me in my tracks, uh, you know, literally jerked me around, and so now I'm standing in front of him. He's got his hand-clasped iron grip with my hard card now, kind of because he sees he can control me through my neck with the lanyard. I, of course, reach down and kind of grab my lanyard but also grab his hand because that's the thing exerting pressure on my neck and pull his hand back, which this isn't like a strength thing, John, but it I think it it kind of changed the dynamic of the interaction where he, in this split-second saw and felt he was in full control and had me by the neck and the lanyard and he could kind of do with me and control me as he wanted. And I'm not saying I am strong, was stronger than the guy, but I was at least able to pull his hand back towards me to relieve pressure on the lanyard, and all of a sudden I could stand up properly. And I think that registered with him that, aha, this guy isn't just going to kneel and bow and fall under my policing um and then he sees my face on the hard card and somehow because it was pretty apparent that this was samuel l jackson right who was not an abstract star then he was like a full-blown star and been in however countless movies by then he sees that, maybe doesn't fully know, I don't know, who Samuel Jackson is, but looks up at me and dang and I see his eyes just get wide like holy crap. Not only was this person trying to run past me and get up to the suites, and I stopped that, but I have just found an imposter. Who and so he's thinking that I've now not only just dressed up like an IndyCar crew member to try and sneak past him, but I've dummied up a hard card and stolen it maybe or something from Samuel L. Jackson, who maybe he didn't know who that was, but clearly black guy's head on the hard card, white guy's face in front of him, off the charts. I mean, he had just, he had found Bin Laden years before we knew. I mean, he had... He had just stopped a huge caper. And so all of a sudden, he's wanting to now confiscate my hard card. So I've now committed two crimes. And so, again, we're about the same size, uh, about the same strength, apparently. And so if you were to have walked by and seen it, you would have seen two grown men applying all of their earthly strength, fighting over. A hard card. And it wasn't so much the trying to control me with it around my neck as it because there was no longer any tension there, but it was him trying to confiscate evidence that was going to be used somehow. And I fought for it with my life (laughs) and eventually got it from him. And I don't remember, I think. I don't think we're talking like radios and, you know, earpieces and security calls and such. I think some other security people had seen this struggle uh go on. And so next thing I know, they're calling such and such person from IndyCar who I knew. And I'm like, "Oh man, this is insane." I'm truly just trying to jog up the steps to go to the hospitality suite. During the 2000 Indy 500 to get my girlfriend so we can then go back to the garage, clean up, do whatever we need. The team will be coming back tomorrow to break everything down and put everything away. I'm just trying to get her. Now this has turned into a genuine security and Indy Racing League, car, Indy 500 incident where multiple people are being called to the site and i don't remember who it was um john i think i'm forgetting i don't remember who was. In, i don't remember if it was a somebody i don't remember who it was from the irl but it was someone that i knew and they came over and We're like, what is going on? Oh, this guy here is trying to run past me and blah, blah, blah. And he's got a fake credential. And I'm like, look, and I'm truly like holding my hard card in my hand that he was stopped trying to get away from me. And I'm peeling Samuel Jackson's face off going, look, clearly it's a joke. You see my name? You see the T right? Like, okay, you've turned this into some sort of massive plot that doesn't exist and this guy was all wound up and it was all because he was not accepting the fact that I didn't just submit myself to him. So, uh, things went round and round and round. And then finally, whomever the IndyCar personnel person was said, look, uh, I'll go up and get your girlfriend. Can you tell me her name or, you know, what she looks like and whatever. I'll go up and get your girlfriend. Uh, We can't have you go up because there's been an incident which I have to report and to your team, and I'm sitting here going, oh, my God. Like, not only do I hate the team that I'm working for, I loathed, but now I'm getting reported to the principal. I'm in trouble with the team I hate, and I'm giving them a reason to dictate my future or exert something over me. I was so pissed at myself. I mean, again, I could blame the security guy for whatever else. I willfully acted the way that I did. I got a pretty early inkling, John, that my reaction to this guy and how I was not uh, submitting to him, just whatever is a much stronger word than irked, it was that. Like, this guy was, I guess I would, in modern terms, Vernacular, I'd say triggered, maybe? I hate that word, but the guy was totally triggered. And so he went quadruple uh, enforcement guy, and I knowingly stoked that out of defiance. So was I doing anything wrong going up the stairs? Truly wasn't. Did things spin out of control from there? Absolutely. I knew that a lot of what I was doing was pissing this guy off. And I'll also say, while I don't remember exactly what I said before more of the security people came up, I was absolutely talking shit to him because he's trying to tell me to stand down and give me this. And I'm like, no, I won't. F you. Like, no, sorry. (laughs) Let's get our time and place in charge here. Uh, I'm not being pulled over by a member of the police. I am not, you know, this is at a freaking racetrack trying to go upstairs. Okay. This is pre-911. There's none of it, right? So, again, I'm not. we're no high security, no high, right? This was just a rapid, massive escalation where it didn't belong. I, though, absolutely poured a lot of fuel on that fire. So, 100% responsible for what happened, which was whatever IndyCar person, whomever it was, went up, got my girlfriend, came down, she's like, what the hell is going on here? Because there's like three or four security guys around me, and they're trying to kind of box me in a little bit and make sure that I don't run off or whatever else. And um, I'm still just talking shit to the guy, uh, telling him how stupid it is that you you know you you've created this unnecessary thing. Again, not owning my part in it while saying those things, of course. Um, brings my girlfriend down. She, I don't know, wasn't fully aware of what had happened obviously or at all aware um and so then the indycar guy said well look uh i'm still gonna have to get this resolved i'm gonna have to talk to the security people here i know you're saying they've behaved incorrectly and you know you've explained your side to me but i'm gonna have to look into this further and in the meantime i'm gonna need you to hand over your hard card and i'm like and there you go i have just played myself to the maximum john um So yeah, and after that race, uh, I think after that race, or was it the next, I don't remember exactly the timeline, it wasn't too long after, where I think both sides decided, you know what, let's just not keep doing this together. Um, And so, yeah, I spent the rest of 2000 doing, uh, what, a lot of Toyota Atlantic race engineering, I think. Uh or I maybe I already was. I don't yeah. Um and I think some other IndyCar stuff. Anyways. Um that's the craziest runner I can share with you. As for the most illegal thing that I've seen happen at a track. I'll have to think about that one a little bit more, brother. Uh Darren Dubois, Marshall, what was the story with the Falcon chassis that was the third option along with G Force and Delara back in two thousand three? Uh, Did Hemelgarn Racing actually sign on with them, which was a rumor back then? Um, I don't, the Hemelgarn side, I'm not totally remembering. The Falcon was the brainchild of former Ford Motorsports boss Michael Um, Yeah, I am forgetting some of the design stuff behind it, as in who designed it. Um, I do remember that my former driver, Greg Ray, who had a team of his own then, maybe, was that, I think, around the same time, forgetting the name, Accent Motorsports or something like that, some IRL team. Um, I do recall Greg, who was struggling for a full budget. Um, there was an interest in possibly using that and running that, and that's not uncommon when a team is hurting for everything it needs and you have a chassis supplier in this case, sometimes it could be an engine supplier, is hurting for someone to take up their goods, and so you can kind of work together, and it saves both at least one side money. Um, I don't recall it ever hitting the track. I could be wrong, but I don't recall it doing anything more than being on display, being looked at, and uh, I do recall, again, I know, Greg, there was something about possibly using it, but I don't believe that happened. And I've seen the car once or twice pop up online for sale. Uh, so, yeah, maybe I'll uh, remember to look into that a little bit more. Uh, three to go. And we have... Sorry, guys, this episode's going a little bit longer than I had hoped, but you all have asked some great questions, and even if I'm trying to rattle through them quickly, some of them dis- deserve a little bit of parking for a moment. Uh, Curtis Cleveland. Hey, Curtis. Hey, and P. So from the outside. Randy Bernard, that would be former IndyCar CEO Randy Bernard, seemed awesome, and like he had big plans. Says hashtag me personally, I was surprised when the firing happened, and I'm wondering if there was a lot of bad blood there. So what was this? The end of twenty? Was it thirteen that he was fired? Something like that? Fourteen, thirteen, twelve? Definitely not twelve, thirteen. I think. Um, then in came what? Anyways. I'm forgetting a little bit the timeline of who is in charge of what and when, but having lived through it and trying to remember, trying to remember this Curtis, this is what I recall. Randy came in, obviously totally out of left field, uh, you know, CEO of the professional bull riding uh, association, PBR, Uh total left field choice brought in by uh, the George sisters. And, he was really a big breath of fresh air because he had no IndyCar baggage. Known as a marketer and promoter, he was highly regarded for his inventive ideas, and I think IndyCar team owners in a very general sense cottoned on to that. Alright, well cool. You know, the the IndyCar isn't what it once was, by no means anywhere close to as popular as it once was. We genuinely believe it's all about marketing and promotions. So, all right, you know, the guy's a businessman. He's run a professional sport, and he is really known as a big idea, marketing, you name it, whiz. Let's give that a whirl. And so I think that there was a lot of support in his early days. I also think that as time went on a little bit, you know, we had the big Las Vegas payout that was meant to happen in 2011 ended obviously in very sad terms with the huge crash and Dan Weldon's death. Uh we know that he wanted to and did introduce double header weekend, so we'll credit him for that. Um he tried to bring and was successful in bringing some new companies into IndyCar. He did try and do some pretty cool things. He was a big idea guy. I'm overstating that for one reason. When he came in with no familiarity to anyone, the thing that got everybody settled was, oh, cool. Big idea guy. We need big ideas. We need IndyCar to be big again. Maybe this guy could do that for us. Within a couple years, I think there were... A number of veteran team owners in particular who started becoming very disenfranchised. I know it wasn't, quote, Randy's fault. Randy didn't know anything about an IndyCar chassis or whatever else, but the introduction of the DW12, all of its problems, all of everything that happened, that hung around his neck a bit for sure. It took away whatever that goodwill that was built on the off-track part, the marketing and promotions and ideas, again, it wasn't him doing that, but the people he was overseeing, you know, everything goes upwards in that direction. Uh, They looked to the top and said, well, okay, we knew you came in with no racing experience. We got to believe the other things you bring will outweigh what is a negative that we perceive as not having any racing experience. And here's a pretty big fart in church that takes away from that goodwill. Yeah, all right, cool, idea this, idea that. Man, this sure sucked. Um, And then you start to add on a growing rolling ball of, yeah, those big ideas aren't really delivering more money. Uh, Bigger TV ratings, uh, you know, the And I'm not saying I agree with all this by any means. I paddle all the time in the world for Randy. But I think the concerns that it might have been all hype that were expressed by some up front that were then settled a bit as he did bring in some good ideas and made some good moves. I would say that as he got towards the end of his tenure, Curtis, and the thing that expedited the end of his tenure was some of the old heads Uh, The old, experienced team owners had been around for a long time, started seeing no longer seeing him as a guy with great ideas that could turn the series around, and as someone who'd been there for enough time and wasn't necessarily delivering what they expected. Not vouching for or against their expectations and whether Randy met them, but I do know that Randy fell into a place, again, I believe we're talking 2013, mid-end 2013, where Randy is just being seen as an outsider. Yeah, all right, we tried this experiment, did have some cool ideas, didn't necessarily change anything for us. Nothing's really grown. Uh, we did get three manufacturers to sign on, which is cool, but one of them left at the end of 2012. They were a total disappointment, that being Lotus. Um, the Prosperity we were told would be coming hasn't. And so it became a pretty tough and vicious room. And I believe former Panther racing team owner, John Barnes was cited most frequently as the person who truly on the, we got to get rid of this guy. Uh, he wasn't one of us when he came in, we tried to give him a break and give him room. Now a couple, two, three, however many years in maybe even four, uh, We're really no better off than we were before. Got to get this guy out and find someone else. So clickish, clubbish, not one of us. Yeah, we'll give you a try, but yeah, no, nah. We'd rather just rely on ourselves again. And so that's kind of sort of the story that I recall of Randy Bernard. And it felt like he wasn't necessarily done properly, uh, done a little bit dirty, but uh, that's how it went down. Craig Johnson. Penultimate question goes to you. Uh, Actually, you say, not a question. Just wanted to say thank you for the podcast. Well, you're welcome. Says, I'm a double dipper with your weekend sports cars and weekend IndyCar. Thank you, Craig. Says, which reminds me. Oh, there is a question. If your wife is kicking butt enough, are we going to see you out in the wild during the 2021 racing seasons? Says, hope to see you up at Road America again. I would love nothing more than to say yes, Craig. I really would. I have a feeling I'll be at a racetrack more than once this year I can't tell you if it's going to be anytime soon I hope we as a country have COVID in a place where I can get on a plane and go to the Indy 500 in May if it happens in May and report from it I have a feeling that might be my first outing if 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 provided all these things can happen um I hope so I really do because I miss it uh I don't know if you figured this out about me, Craig, Uh, bit of an extrovert, like talking to people, like conversating, um, yeah, being around my racing people. I'm a racing person. (laughs) It's been the foundation of my life. How strange is it to not be next to race cars and racing people and mechanics and engineers and drivers and like, this is my place. It's where I work, but it's also my happy place outside of being home with my wife. So having both of those things, which has been my norm for a long time, yeah, I'd love to get back the other side. But as we continue to fight cancer, as we continue to deal with uh, non-existent immune systems, I just look forward to a time, my friend, where I can travel, go to airports and hotels and racetracks and be around people and hold live public podcasts on the cooper Tire stage um or another stage that might be coming to um or i can do those things and really not have to worry about bringing home a really nasty virus um and what it could do you know there's also and this is maybe the other part i really try and put in the back of my mind if covid were to go away tomorrow a hey, lord willing I'd still have to do all that I could to avoid people with common colds and regular flus because someone with no immune system, obviously the nastier the virus, the worse the possible outcomes. But you know, there's no like happy cold a person without an immune system can get. Uh, the outcome could still be dire. So anyways, I hope so, brother. I really do. Um, I really do. Uh, Jameen Tuttle, you're going to close the show for me here. Uh, there is no cutoff line, as you can tell. Uh, we've gone way longer than I expected, but I don't give a poop. Uh, you ask, MP, the paddock has had mountain climbers, drummers, car collectors, hunters, and triathletes in it uh, over the last few years. What are the craziest or coolest hobbies you've seen or heard about drivers having over the years? Wow. Uh know the craziest wackiest type stuff a lot of it's pretty linear you know car collecting uh that's a pretty big one that comes with a making a pretty decent salary i do like the hobbyist side that's one that has always stood out to me as fascinating um i know canon has done this. I know Montoya still does this. And there are a few, uh, that do this. And that is remote control, right? Remote control planes, uh, dirt cars and whatever else the, I make a living as an IndyCar driver. I drive among the fastest vehicles on the planet and do one of the most dangerous things in the world, well compensated for it, so on and so forth. And I live this crazy, extreme lifestyle. Compared to the average person, it's insane. And so, instead of having that balance where you go, and when I'm away from the track, I actually try and be a normal, non-competitive person, I've probably been most fascinated by the Montoyas, who are like, oh yeah, i got to go down and get a new a propeller for this or new that for this remote control boat that I got or this RC off-road thing or whatever. And I, it's awesome. Keep in mind, it's probably not too different from hell idiots like me who collect racing memorabilia. It's a magazine or a car part or a who knows whatever it is. But I just love the idea of someone who gets paid to go 240 miles an hour who on their day off is like, oh, am I going to rest and recharge my battery and brain and slow things down for a moment so I can then be fully prepared to get back up to speed? No, 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 I'm never going to stop. No, I need to play with mechanical things. I need to control them. I need to do acrobatic, aerobatic, whatever-batic things, and go, 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 new thing, test it, tune it, try it, new motor for this, a new tire. Like, just fascinating. I love that, Jameen. So probably it's maybe just more one specific driver i don't know if it's crazy but i love what it says about the person and how that's really all that they want to do so that's it for now it's a great question though that i might need to borrow and spin out into a question that i asked to some drivers if not many drivers uh, with the new season approaching because that might actually make for a really interesting uh, either podcast or written piece or both alright guess what Jesus uh, it's a long episode y'all uh, I am Marshall Pruitt this is Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires the Justice Brothers Toronto Motorsports.com. dot we do have a part two did I tell you that we rolled in a lot of the ones that I missed from the part two I didn't do last week so that's kind of why we're at this really long show Okay, I got to go make dinner for my wife who's going to kill me if I don't. Thank you all for listening. I'll speak to you soon.